So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Hey, uh, I'm Nate Larkin here with my good friend, co-host, the Big Kahuna. Uh, the Big Kahuna, where did that come from? I don't, I don't know. know. I, I don't know. David Hampton. <laughs> <laughs> that may be a first. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit punchy, David. Uh, uh, I can't imagine hold. why. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you're finally uh, in a place that you will eventually become familiar with calling home. Yeah, yeah. We we are in the process of finally, you know, making the move to Mount Pleasant, uh, Tennessee. Allie and I spent five long months down in Florida waiting for this house to be finished. Uh, we got in last week. Uh, in the meantime, I made two drives from Florida to here in the space of five days. Oh, my gosh. And then the movers showed up. And I don't know what happened, but somehow it seems as though the content of our old house doubled while I was gone. Uh, they showed up in two moving vans and, uh, you know, spent the day hauling stuff in. Every time I turned around, there was another piece of furniture I forgot we owned. Uh, there were, you know, boxes on top of boxes. Oh, uh, yeah. So Allie and I have been unpacking. Uh, I actually put a pod in the front yard to handle overflow for now. It's a oh, you know, clear space. You know, we look like we well actually we're bringing some order out of cash we don't look like hoarders anymore okay uh, but yeah but uh i think i don't know you've moved around some dave yeah i think uh yeah this is an opportunity for us to like take another look at the stuff we have accumulated and been hauling around all these years yeah. Allie, i've been married for 43 years. Oh Come my on. Lord. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. And we have stuff from her parents and then the stuff that we've collected and the stuff that people have given us and the, you know, yeah. if you're going on a trip, you're going on vacation, you want to bring home some kind of a memento. So we've got all of those, you know, and then the stuff from the kids and the grandkids. And at some point you've just got to look at it and do some triage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I recommend moving every five years just so you can weed out the crap. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Um, but it's yeah. I mean, you you do. You realize you've got a whole lot more than you thought you uh, had and, and maybe more than you needed. Yeah. And 
Um, yeah. So, so what's the plan? Are you guys going to have a big fire sale, or are you going to have a giving away? Or yeah, we are going. We've already given a lot of stuff away. Uh, but my daughter is uh, at the end of this month going to be going to Scotland. Wow. Uh, she's been invited to uh, perform at a folk festival in Scotland. That's awesome. And, and then uh, with the help of, she has a, she actually made the Americana charts in Europe with her last uh, CD. Mm. And on the base strength of that, they've lined up uh, a bunch of house concerts. Mm-hmm. Uh but still, it's an expensive trip. So, we, the, the, it's a it's a long answer to a short question. We are going to have a big ass yard sale. Uh, you know, the, the mother of all yard sales uh, to benefit uh, to benefit uh, her trip to Scotland. Well, that's a great cause. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you know airfares are sky high, and then there's going to be a lot of expenses over there. Oh yeah, she'll be off work for a couple of weeks while she does it. So yeah. Well, you've got yeah, a so great house. I, I saw the picture of the uh, exterior and some of the interiors that Ali sent. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you've got a porch and you've got, um, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, small town life. And you're right there, not too far from, um, I guess, the the square or the downtown yeah, yeah. Mount Pleasant. It's, you know, it is wonderful. It really reminds me of Franklin 22 years ago. Before the boom. Before, yeah. Yeah, before the boom. So, you know, small town, very friendly, slow pace, no traffic problems. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there by five o'clock. <laughs> um, and a great coffee shop I can walk to, uh, a brewery I can walk to. So that, that, uh, <laughs> but can you walk home? Another That's... complication into the lifestyle. <laughs> I was going to say, it was the, bur- the brewery you can walk to, but can you walk home? <laughs> uh, 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 you know, a few nice restaurants, uh, yeah. a public library, and uh, yeah, and historic homes and friendly people. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think we're going to do well here. And grandkids uh, right down the street, four doors down the street. So well, you can't, can't beat, beat that. that. I mean, that's that's wonderful. You'll be, and uh, you know, you'll be a, a a great part of their memory making. You know, I mean, when they yeah, are yeah. older and they can tell people that they, you know, walk down to uh, their grandparents' house yeah. whenever they decided that, you know. They needed some love and reinforcements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, th- their mom is a single mom, works, and uh, so th- they'll spend a lot of time at our house. They've got a nice big room, a bedroom that is just theirs. It's all set up for them uh, with its own bathroom. And I put a refrigerator in there. They were so thrilled. Oh, wow. I, 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 it's pretty big deal when you're 11 and yeah. you have your own refrigerator, you know? Yeah. Of course. So, yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, that's great. You guys will get settled in and it'll be a beautiful, a beautiful season for you. I hope so. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, getting things settled here so that I can get back into a productive routine. There's so much writing to be done. 
so much more podcasting, so much more connecting, so much more work to do. Mm-hmm. It, I, I feel like I'm poised for another good season now that we're getting our feet back on the ground in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you are. All right, well... That's a lot. That's a lot about me at the top of this show. I don't know how we got there. Well, I've just I've just been kind of watching you, like um, you know, every every week or so when we talk, uh, you know, yeah. how uh, how much longer in Florida, and and I think you said you know another month or so for a couple yeah. of months, and uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's good to know that you're looking at at a place called home. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we've probably put the uh, put the listeners to sleep. Uh, hey, uh, you guys can wake up now. We we do have we, we do have a guest this week, and you'll meet her when we return on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Hey, David, uh, yes, you have found another five-star guest for us this week. I believe uh, we have. Yes, a woman <laughs> with a, uh, a terrific recovery story of her own and a, a book with a fascinating title. Uh, yeah. Would you yeah. introduce our guest? Absolutely, and a therapist. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you're, it's kind of a, multi, uh, a multi-pronged approach to recovery going on here, which uh, we all love. Uh, our we guest hit the is, trifecta. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Our guest is Amanda White. And Amanda is the author of a book uh, called Not Drinking Tonight, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love. And it's on Hachette Books. And um, and, uh, and Amanda, like we said, is also a therapist. And she's in recovery. And uh, Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you guys. Yeah. You're coming to us from the Philly area, Philadelphia. I am. Yeah, great. Are you Philadelphia born and bred? I am not. Um, I grew up in a bunch of different places. My dad was just kind of like, he climbed the the corporate ladder and we went where his jobs took us. So um, I actually, I lived in like five states growing up. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that, that so, tends you know, to... that's part of my recovery story. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That, cre- that creates some uh, challenges for attachment, doesn't it? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, wow. Now, now we know why you drink or whatever, or you used yeah. to or something. Uh, exactly. Well, how did you get into the recovery business, uh, so to speak, Amanda? Because I know that for most of us, um, I'm a addiction recovery coach, and Nate uh, is an author and speaker and uh, about uh, things in recovery and uh, most of us don't just wake up one day and decide that'd be a great uh, career path unless we've got some experience in that uh, arena. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sober. I've been sober for almost eight years now, and I have kind of been on different parts of the addiction spectrum. Um, you know, when I discovered alcohol, it really, to me, kind of felt like friends in a bottle. It felt like it cured my social anxiety and the attachment. And I struggled with making friends when I was growing up. And um, I kept drinking and my addiction progressed in college. And um, then I was in grad school looking to become a therapist. I didn't think I would specialize in addiction. But after 
you know, I got into recovery and realized because I went into being coming a therapist and I didn't think I had an addiction. Mm. I knew I had some mental health issues, but I didn't think my drinking was that bad. I, you know, was very much in denial. And then um, once I got into recovery, I became really passionate about working in recovery. And I went on to work um, at a drug and alcohol rehab and run a women's unit there. And then I started my private practice. And um, I kind of saw how many people were also being left out of the conversation with alcohol, you know, if they don't meet criteria for having a substance use disorder. But I saw lots of people struggling with alcohol and it negatively impacting their lives. So um, that's kind of how the book came to be written. Wow. Wow. Now, did you find once you got sober, was there an interplay between your drinking and your mental health issues? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that that was one of the most important reasons why I got sober was I was in therapy. I was struggling. I also had an eating disorder Mm -hmm. and I was struggling to make progress in my eating disorder. Um, And I would go out and get drunk and I would kind of not follow through with any of the things that I had talked to my therapist about. I would, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing that I was really working on was self-esteem. And I felt like, how can I build positive self-esteem when I go get drunk and do things that I regret and, you know, feel Mm -hmm. shame about? And that became a really important, you know, reason that I quit drinking. Wow. Yeah. Well, that'll do it. <laughs> As a, I, I can firsthandedly attest. Um, so, um, so how did you get into the therapy field? I mean, did you just decide that that was a way that might help you work through some of the what you said you had some mental health issues, maybe? But um, yeah, I mean, the the funny story is I, I was in undergrad. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was very not well. I I was terrified of getting a real job <laughs> after graduating college. Um, so I was like, I'll, you know, do some part-time classes and take some psychology graduate classes, essentially. And I started really liking it. Um, and I absolutely think at the time I was hoping that it would help me a lot of therapists go to, you know, get, go to school and think maybe they'll be able to cure themselves. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I, I liked it and I kind of kept going. And, um, then that was when I really realized that I had an addiction problem uh-huh. as well. Uh-huh. But I, I mean, it's funny too, cause I also became a therapist cause I used to think I'm really nice and, and being a therapist is just about, listening to people and, and being nice uh-huh. and um, was in for a rude awakening, especially when you work in the substance use field. Sometimes you have to be very honest <laughs> with people and say things they don't want to hear. Yeah. 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 Pretty direct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it sounds to me as though you had a social life in college that uh, when you uh, Alcohol helped you be social. At least that's how it seemed, right? Yep, yep. Uh, Was there a reluctance to quit drinking because you didn't know how you'd be able to function socially without alcohol? Was that a challenge? Absolutely. I mean, I also got – I quit drinking when I was 24. Uh So my biggest fear when I was – when people were talking to me about quitting drinking – 
was that I wouldn't have a social life, that right. I would be a loser. I mean, alcohol felt like this important thing in my life that tied me to other people and allowed me to make friends. Right. Um, yeah. So I was really, really scared, especially just being young um, and feel like a lot of my friends partied a lot. And that was a big part of my identity too, was I liked being able to be like the fun one and the crazy one that would, you know, didn't take herself too seriously. Uh Um, And actually, interestingly, when I told my parents I was going to quit drinking, they were not supportive. Um, They were kind of like, we don't think you have a problem. We think you're being dramatic. It's going to be hard for you to make friends. You're never going to get married, Uh Um, which was really hard for me because, you know, I was trying to do the right thing and I was already scared of those things. Yeah. Were they afraid you were going to be labeled um, by going into recovery? You were going to suddenly label yourself or be labeled by others or something like that? Exactly. Yeah. So I came to them and said, you know, like I'm an alcoholic and they were very afraid of that word. Uh They didn't think that it was the right (laughs) fit for me. Um, And yeah, that was a huge part of their concern was you're making your life harder. People aren't going to understand you. How will you date? How will you ever, Uh you know, make friends? They knew I was already struggling and um, it was very like, why would you make yourself more different when you already struggle with feeling different. Uh, well, yeah, well, I know that is, that's a common experience. Uh, it, it seems as though for a large part of contemporary society, uh, let's get a drink sometime is shorthand for, Hey, I'd like to get to know you. Uh, totally. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, our words for sobriety, uh, you know, we tend to s- describe somebody as stone cold sober. That doesn't sound very appealing, does it? <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> and so if I give up drinking, I feel like I'm giving up something that is enhancing my life, making it better. Uh, and that's, yeah. uh, and so we have to have a pretty strong motivator to get over that hurdle. Uh. And yet, uh, from what I gather, you have found what uh, a few other authors uh, in the field have found, that there actually is a beautiful life in sobriety, that it gets better, not worse. Uh, But uh, I think all of us who deal with alcohol, and I put myself in uh, uh, in that category, I'm kind of negotiating with you know, I, I prefer to be a different kind of addict. Um, it takes some, uh, some, some strategy, I guess, to uh, construct a sober life. And it sounds like you've got some advice for those of us moving in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the fr- most frustrating things about what you were saying. The idea of sobriety is people think it's giving up. People think that they won't have connections. And I was terrified of that. But the truth is, I mean, my life became so much better when I stopped drinking. It was really difficult at first and I was scared and I absolutely lost friends. But what I really found was, you know, alcohol was this like quick fix that would kind of make me feel connected to people quickly. 
but it wasn't creating the real relationships Mm -hmm. that I wanted because it was like, you know, a glue stick. It was just super quick, easy to fall apart where I find that in sobriety, those relationships that take more time to set though are so much stronger. Um, And I have so many more deep connections now that aren't just based around drinking. And I think that's the hardest part is just if you're always using alcohol to connect with people and your relationship is dependent on that, you don't actually have an authentic connection with that person. And life is going to change. You know, people get new jobs, they move, they, you know, have kids and do different things. And if you're only connected through alcohol, if that relationship changes, it won't be able to survive that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So well, you did lose some friends when you, I'm sorry. Dude. No, go ahead, Nate. You said you absolutely did lose some friends when you, yeah. but the fact that when you stopped drinking, the friendship ended, that is kind of a qualitative uh, statement about the friendship, right? Yeah. It felt like the, I mean, it felt like the anyone who had an issue with me not drinking or we didn't have anything in common without drinking, um, it was not a relationship I wanted to continue to have anyway. I always have longed for deeper, authentic connections with people. So mm-hmm. it was hard because it kind of shook it up. But um, I feel like I was left with much deeper, more authentic uh, connections and the relationships in my life now. I don't worry that you know if something changed, we wouldn't sustain that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not the pivotal centerpiece of your um, of your life. I remember thinking, you know, I only really wanted to associate with people that drank. I didn't trust people that didn't. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that kind of thinking. Um, but I like your title to your book. Um, Amanda, not drinking tonight. And then, uh, you know, a guide to creating a sober life you love, uh, the not drinking tonight. Um, did that come from something you had to learn to say so that you didn't go into a long hand version of your story every time somebody offered you a drink or something, you know, like I'm just, I'm not drinking tonight. Yes. And it's something that I often help my clients say. I, I, one of my biggest pieces of advice for people that are kind of exploring quitting or maybe they've stopped drinking, but they don't want to kind of go into a whole story is so many of us are tempted to make an excuse Mm -hmm. when we say we're not drinking. People say, you know, I, I need to be the DD or I have to get up early tomorrow or I'm, you Uh know, running Mm -hmm. a race or whatever. And it's wild how when you say an excuse, people will go out of their way to help you be able to drink. Right. Yeah. 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 They'll be like people who are typically not very, you know, altruistic will, will offer to, you know, pay for your, you know, Uber home or they'll offer to help get up tomorrow and help you move. They'll do all that. Yeah. 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 So I started telling clients to just say, just say, I'm not drinking tonight. You don't need to say why. You don't need a good enough reason. When we use a reason, also, we reaffirm this this like stereotype in our culture that you need to have a good enough reason mm-hmm. to not drink. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't just choose to not drink tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where the title came from is through those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, do you still go out 
It seems like I do. Okay. Well, how is going out uh, different? I mean, no, how but, is you it know. better? How, uh, yeah. How how do you <laughs> function like. in, in an yeah. alcohol saturated society? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have some ideas in terms of. I think everyone's different. I think it's important to understand and identify what is important to you if you want to go out. So. Mm-hmm. I know myself well enough now and I have questions and this is a part of my book too to help people kind of understand what's important to them when they're going out. For me, um, I don't want to go to a dive bar or a place where there's not good ambiance, where yeah. it maybe doesn't smell good, there's not good service. But I will happily go to like a nice bar that has good service, that maybe has like a cool vibe or a cool view. Um And I love like trying different mocktails or different, you know, there's a lot of cool new things on the market. Um, And even in the Philadelphia area, there are some, there are quite a few places that, that have, you know, alcohol-free beverages Uh on the menu. Um, Other things that I know for me, like I love live music. I can very easily go, you know, I love going to concerts or listening to live music. I like going somewhere where there's something to do uh-huh. besides just drinking. That's one of my big tips. I think it's hard to really have fun if you're kind of in a an environment where there's nothing to do besides just drink. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, there aren't, you know, mocktail options and the, the ambiance isn't great. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, it's hard to convince people that they can enjoy uh, being – out and with friends and all of that if their if their world has revolved around you know alcohol and and all of that and and um how do you uh help people amanda with uh the way they talk about going out and using alcohol with respect to their social anxiety you know because that's an excuse i hear a lot and then one might you know i may have used a few times too is i'm just a little better in public when i drink a little bit you know um, never mind that it always ended badly after a while or that I couldn't just drink a little bit after a while. But the point being, you know, everybody believes they're just a little more fun after a couple of glasses of wine. How do you, how do you help the socially anxious person in that respect? So one of the best things we can do if we have anxiety is actually practice. It's like avoidance of that anxiety whether it's by not going to the event or by drinking to avoid the anxiety, makes our anxiety worse over time. Mm-hmm. It makes us become dependent on this substance to be able to do the things that we want to do. So often what I talk to clients about, and I talk about it in my book, is there's a lot, like, until you learn the skills of how to go out without a drink, maybe date without a drink, you know, go to an, a wedding, an event without a drink or whatever, it is going to be hard. It is going to feel scary and like you're not having as much fun uh-huh. and awkward, but you are capable of gaining those skills. The problem is we all start drinking typically in high school or college, so we never actually learn how to socialize without drinking. So of course it's going to be scary if you've never done it before, but the good news is you absolutely can learn. Uh Well, friends, 
David and I are pleased to welcome to the podcast a new sponsor, Soberlink. And we're positive that you're going to love this tool for managing your alcohol recovery. In early sobriety, we often focus on what we're losing instead of what we're gaining. Soberlink, you're gaining increased accountability, a deterrent against drinking, and a tool to help you stay connected with people who care. Uh, Here's what it is. It's a really high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition. It allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones. In case there's ever a slip, your treatment professional or anyone else you've chosen to be in your recovery circle will know immediately. Uh, More important than the technology is the brand. It is part of Soberlink's mission to break the stigma that surrounds addiction, which is why they partner with Positive Sobriety Podcast and many others in the recovery community. It's also why they specifically focus on using alcohol monitoring as a recovery tool, not for criminal or recreational purposes. There there isn't anything like it on the market. Well, together we've developed a guide called Tips for Keeping a Positive Outlook on Sobriety. And you can download it at www.soberlink.com slash PSP. That PSP is for Positive Sobriety Podcast. On that page, you'll also find a form to request $50 off your purchase when you're ready to try Soberlink. Yeah. So, so do you find yourself then coaching clients in uh, the skills of uh, social interaction? Yeah, I do. I mean, it doesn't always look like topics of conversation, right? Or things like that necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But I think a lot of it is like helping them and supporting them and tolerating the, the anxiety. Oh, like, gotcha. You know, because I think sometimes we feel like we're going to die if our heart rate is like increasing or, you know, our our breathing, it feels uncomfortable, but it's, it's learning that like the more you can sit with it and not try to escape it, Uh um, the higher your tolerance is. And then, you know, and there may be certain situations where you just, you know, you don't like live music or you don't like certain things that I or other people like, but the cool thing is when you stop drinking, you start to really get in touch with what's actually fun for you and what's actually something that you enjoy doing. Uh-huh. How far into your sobriety uh, journey were you, Amanda, before you took on the um, the, the great and uh, ambitious task of writing a book? Um, <laughs> I started writing the book, let's see, I guess two, two and a half years. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Okay. So two years ago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was like, a, I was about six years. So yeah. And did you get pushback from publishers about, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, I'm guessing um, it, it, we, we got a lot of books out there about, you know, how not to drink, or is this another drunk log? And, you know, you, <laughs> you know, you're one more person that got sober and now you're going to, Uh, tell us all your ugly stories about when you used to drink or, you know, did you have a hard time selling this idea or, and, and coming up with a unique enough um, uh, angle, I guess, for lack of a better term uh, to get somebody interested in helping you share your story with the world? 
Um, I actually didn't just because my book is not a memoir. Mm -hmm. It is a self straight self-help book. And there's literally before my book, there is zero books written by a therapist who is also sober. Mm. There's, there's kind of my goal in writing the book was to bridge the gap between memoirs and, and, you know, stories and the very clinical therapy mm-hmm. written by a clinician addiction yeah. based book. Yeah. There wasn't any like consumer facing books that were written by a therapist. Um, and a lot of my book is kind of like interactive. So there are questions at the end of each chapter to help people unpack their relationship um, with alcohol and help them understand themselves better. So my goal is obviously it's not therapy, but the goal is someone can walk away with some tools to help them really discover something about themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned earlier that uh, you have during your life also battled uh, uh, an eating disorder. Yeah. Uh, It raised a question in my mind. One of my good friends, uh, Constance Rhodes, uh, also a, a survivor of uh, that struggle. Yeah. Although uh, she was, I forget her terminology. I think she said uh, subclinical. In other words, she didn't meet all the criteria to actually be labeled uh, a bulimic or anorexic, but yeah. she definitely had major issues with food. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I, if we apply kind of that same question to alcohol use, yeah, there are those of us who just don't hit all the markers for the alcoholic, but we've definitely got issues with alcohol and we would like to quit. However, it's hard to get help or even get encouragement or support if uh, if you don't meet those criteria, so that everybody around can agree, yeah, oh, you got an issue, you you know, D- does that make any sense? And and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually talk about it in my book specifically. Mm-hmm. There's a term for someone who doesn't meet all the criteria for an eating disorder. We call it disordered eating. Mm-hmm. And because it's a known term, it's actually much easier for me to talk to clients in my practice about if they have some food struggles or if maybe they're like chronic dieting or their body image is suffering because they don't have to admit they have an eating disorder right? to talk about it. And as a result, in my book, what I actually, I created the term disordered drinking Mm -hmm. because we don't have that term, like you said, and that really is missing, I think. And whenever I ask clients, how much are you drinking or... How, you know, they talk to me about being hungover or whatever, and I try to ask about their relationship with alcohol. Typically, the first response they say to me is, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. It's like, I didn't ask that, right? Yeah, I'm right, not right. labeling you an alcoholic. I'm just asking you a question. And I think that's a really big gap that that I hope, you know, I hope that book or I hope the term disordered drinking will become more commonplace because I think. I think we all can go through periods of our life too. I think most college students engage in disordered drinking, right? And I think the idea that only you're born an alcoholic and you will never, you know, mm-hmm. I think that is 
really hard because people then don't think that they could possibly have a problem right? because they would already have it by now. Yeah, yeah. Where instead, if you look at the underlying causes of alcohol use and substance use disorders, we're all on the spectrum. We yeah. all have the possibility in our life, given mental health issues, trauma, you know, other biopsychosocial factors to engage in alcohol in an unhealthy way and, you know, become dependent on it. Yeah. I heard a great phrase the other day from a therapist uh, who deals with all kinds of process addictions from, mm -hmm. uh, from uh, uh, sex addiction to gambling. Uh, the model he uses, the phrase that he uses, uh, and it's uh, broken out of a model, he classifies all these as distress reduction behaviors. I love that. I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And he says that they all go back to early childhood when we're in distress. We don't know how to regulate. We're not getting help. We may not be abused, but it might be neglect or there all yeah. this other. Ones. So we're in distress. We have to find a way to uh, calm ourselves and we find something. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I love that. I mean, yeah, I use the term, like I talk about it as like a maladaptive coping skill. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, that, that's, I think another important thing is alcohol for most of us worked for a while right. until it did it. Uh -huh. And I think it's really important to highlight that for people. So they, because there can be so much shame with, you know, substance use disorders and there was a purpose. I think it's really important also if you want to change your relationship with alcohol to understand how it was serving you in some capacity. So then you can start to look at developing other skills that will actually serve you long-term. Yeah. Well, Amanda, so, so I, I keep going back to the book. Um, I, I'm not yeah. sure why exactly, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's an intriguing title and a, and a great read, but I think that the pro I always think about the process of writing because I've, I've written a couple of books, Nate's written books, and it's an intensely personal process. It's a vulnerable process and uh, very often a reliving <laughs> of things. And I know you, this isn't a memoir. Um, it's more of a, of an approach uh, with, you know, some clinical principles and, and uh, recovery principles and things. But did you, in the process of writing this book, and this may be a personal question, but did you, uh, experience uh, any, uh, well, what I call oh shit moments uh, <laughs> where <laughs> you're feeling like, I don't know, I'm feeling a little triggered or I um, maybe I missed this a little more than I thought I did. Or am I in as solid a space as I thought I was? Did it, did it cause you to do some inventory as to uh, your, your place and stage in things? Um, I think, I think, I mean, I totally agree. I write, I mean, writing this book, I think is the hardest thing that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think what was the hardest part for me was there were moments in the writing process where I felt, you know, you have an outline, you know what you're writing, but you still get very confused mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you get tied in this knot that you have to untie yourself in yeah. and, Sometimes when you're trying to undo the knot, it gets tighter and tighter and you're worried that it will never come undone. Um, and that was really hard for me. It was really dysregulating, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. It was stressful. 
Um, and there was a lot of fear as I was writing the book because it's such a kind of lonely, isolating process. Mm-hmm. It can make you question yourself and make you kind of be like, do I actually know what I'm talking about? Does this make sense? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I feel like because I'd never written a book before, I wasn't used to that being kind of a normal part of the process. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you made great use of the pandemic. I mean, let's face it, <laughs> it's a great use of quarantine time. Yes. Yeah. Well, that is true. Uh, a couple of basic questions. How are our listeners yeah. going to find the book? Where are they going to Where are they going to get it? Yeah, so you can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. um, you know, bookshop.org, places like that, maybe your local bookstore. Um, so yeah, it's but it should be pretty easily accessible. Not drinking tonight is the name of the book. Yeah. All right, not drinking tonight. And if our listeners want to contact you directly, is there a way they can do that? Absolutely. Um, so probably the easiest way is you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is at therapy for women, but anyone is welcome to follow me. That's just the name of my therapy practice. Okay. So if you're interested in therapy, um, you can also check out our, our website, which is therapyforwomencenter.com. Mm. And I want to ask one quick thing, Amanda, before we get away. Yeah. Um, with respect to your eating disorder, did that rear its head when you got sober? In other words, you know, I have clients who struggle with uh, disordered eating or eating disorders, and I don't, I don't uh, work with those, uh, and they get help other places for that. But what we do experience sometimes is when people get sober, um, that starts to rear its head a- again, and maybe they've had that managed for a while. Did, was that an experience you had? It was. It was kind of like whack-a-mole uh-huh. for me where – I initially had an eating disorder. I started drinking a lot more and the eating disorder kind of tapered a little bit. Then my eating disorder got better. I started drinking a lot more. Mm -hmm. Then I stopped drinking and my eating disorder got worse until I was finally able to kind of um, find recovery in both. Mm -hmm. So that's very common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I like for people to share that just because I think it helps people, uh, first of all, understand that there's hope when they're dealing with co-occurring things. But also that that's a very common that's a very common thing to happen. Uh, you know, we start absolutely. Yeah, I have a whole chapter in my book also dedicated to kind of like co addictions and managing them and and how that all happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right. Well, the title of the book again is "Not Drinking Tonight." Uh, a, what's the subtitle? I don't have it in front a of me. A guide to creating a sober life you love. There you go. All right. The author is Amanda White. Uh, Delightful. And uh, it's been a very enjoyable and illuminating conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out of your practice to speak with us. Uh, Listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Listeners, we'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I like Amanda, uh, Nate. I think (laughs) she is, uh, you know, she exudes kindness and empathy and compassion, but she's that rare mix of therapist, 
uh, slash recovering person who mm. understands uh, exactly what she's asking of the people that come to see her. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and I think this is a great, uh, a great book that will be a great tool for a lot of people that are trying to put words to um, how to navigate socially after recovery. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As we be, as we embark on recovery, I shouldn't say after recovery, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I feel like this is a helpful, a helpful conversation for a lot of folks. Um, yeah, yeah. You know how to how to navigate that that world that we uh, went through, you know, with a lot of anesthesia prior to uh, yeah, sobriety. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, yeah, I have not had the privilege of reading the book yet, uh, but uh, it I have ordered it already. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, maybe even do a little pocket review later. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, David, uh, before we go, Maybe you could remind us about our our sponsor, our first sponsor, our legacy sponsor. The legacy sponsor, yes, BetterHelp.com. And uh, BetterHelp.com is the uh, absolutely greatest way you can have of having therapy in your own privacy of your own home, uh, a place that you can get online uh, counseling services uh, consistently with the same person. Uh, you can go on to betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and get a 10% discount on your initial signup. And that uh, also will help us know that the resources that we're providing are beneficial to you. But betterhelp.com is um, is a resource that you can use with any of the other uh, mental health issues that you might seek counseling for uh, in a in a more conventional way. Um, this allows you to set up a time that's convenient for you with the same person. And if the person that you have is not, um, someone that you're feeling super comfortable with, you can always make a change and, uh, and request a new counselor. Um, no questions, no problem. Um, but this gives you the opportunity to discuss the things that, uh, may have you stuck in your life. And, uh, you're always hearing Nate and I encouraging people to, uh, you know, change patterns, get unstuck, talk to a friend, tell that mm-hmm. confidential person and betterhelp.com is your opportunity to do that. So uh, take advantage of betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, get your discount and get unstuck. Wonderful. Uh, also, we love to hear from our listeners. You can reach us always at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. And if you have found the show helpful, uh, we would ask a favor. Go ahead and rate the podcast wherever it is uh, that you have found us. And that helps other people find us on down the road. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this week. Great to see you again, uh, David. Uh, well, likewise, I, it's good to yeah. see you with a different backdrop. <laughs> <laughs> and and now that I'm within uh, an hour's driving distance, uh, we're going to reconnect for a cup of coffee sometime. Yes, next, we are. Uh, next yes, we weeks. are. All right. Well, listeners, that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. 
Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 